So this is our discussion time on our time in, in John today. And um, there's a blank slate. We can talk about anything that's on the screen. Uh, I, I mentioned in the in the message this morning uh, just the traditions of the Jews that are, are, are out there. And um, to put it in perspective, in the days of Jesus, of course, they had the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the, the Old Testament. They also had uh, Jewish writings. You've heard of the book of Maccabees, and maybe you've been in the Catholic Church, and you've heard references to maybe Ecclesiasticus or Tobit or some of these kind of books. That's the Apocrypha. Those are Jewish books in, in, in Greek that um, when Jerome discovered those, those books, he was he said, well, these books, uh, they're Jewish books, but they're not in the Hebrew Scriptures. They're kind of hidden, which is what Apocrypha means. But he went ahead and translated them since he had them. And eventually they made it into the Catholic Scriptures and the Orthodox Scriptures, but they're not a part of the Bible. Jesus did not recognize them as Jewish canon. So that's the Apocrypha. He, he recognized the Jewish uh, scriptures but the by, by, even by then the Jewish people had been developing the rabbis had these traditions that they hand down orally from generation to generation <clears throat> well before 200 AD uh, they were the traditions that were available were compiled and written into what, what we call the Mishnah you get a large looks like a large dictionary single volume English translation translated by uh, Danby uh, my set of the uh, Mishnah is, it's got Hebrew and English, and so it's about six volumes, about that big. And then, so that's about 200 AD, so that's after Jesus. But that, the reason like I have that and we look at the Mishnah is, it reflects some of the, the Jewish thinking in the days of Jesus. In about 500 AD, they, uh, there was another written compilation called the Talmud. And so I just use these labels. And what that takes is, that's a commentary on the Mishnah. So I thought I would show that a little bit about that to you tonight. Well, let's see if I can, oh, how that sneak in there. <laughs> this is a uh, track preparation for, uh, for you know, National Track and Treat Night. Barb had some volunteers taking candy and loading uh, Ziplocs with candy and, and some great tracks. And here's the missionary team ready and waiting to uh, to greet the folks coming. 200 and how many, Barb? 236 we gave out, and unfortunately we ran out. We ran out we of candy. We could have done 350. Barb kept telling me I needed to go out and get some more candy. She wanted me to circulate and put on a costume and go get candy up and down the street. <laughs> but I wouldn't do it. So, if I, like I said, my, my copy, my set of the mission is about maybe 10, 15, 10 inches, 12 inches wide in volumes. Here's the here's a, a version of the Talmud, and this is just no English in it. And so you can, this is, and there's two Talmuds. I, I only say this because sometimes you hear these words cast around, and I thought a good time to maybe give you background. The Talmud, or T-A-L-M-U-D, um, there's two, two versions. There's the Babylonian Talmud. You want to guess where that was written? Babylon. Babylon. Good, very good. And the uh, and then there's a, a Jerusalem Talmud, and you can guess where that was written. So there's so there's Babylonian and or Palestinian Talmud. So there's two different versions. This is the Babylonian. Uh, this is a page of Talmud, and and I just you know just you notice if you're just looking at it, uh, you see various columns all put together, and that actually makes sense. That's that's actually, and, and I'll show you in just a minute some kind of lay out what's going on here. But there are centuries of rabbinic tradition reflected on this Talmud. So these these are this is a, a page and page after page. The mission is written in Hebrew and the and the Talmud is the rest of it is written in Aramaic. And um uh, and there's a reading pattern you could follow through and read through it in about seven years and they have the seven year cycle to read through. The tradition is a truly great uh, rabbinic scholar. If, if he would take this Talmud, stick a pin through a page, he could tell you what word that needle is through for the next six pages. So I mean, this is this is they know, and so this is what you find with the, the the observant, studious Jews of today. They know their Talmud better than their scriptures. 
this is this is what they study. So the, the, the scripture is kind of like preschool. And most of us don't go back to our preschool studies. We, you know, we keep moving on. So notice this kind of lays out what's there. And this shows, for example, this section here is, is Mishnah. So the Mishnah, you can see it's just a small portion. So this is a quote from the six volumes. Not all six volumes are represented, but certain passages are. So here's this one paragraph. And Mishnah, if you can think of it, is, is the rabbinic commentary on the Bible, in a sense. It's not verse by verse, but it's, it's, it's teaching on portions of the Bible. So a Mishnah might mention a Bible passage and then say, what does that mean? How do we apply that? What does that look like? Like I've mentioned before, okay, the Bible says you shall not work. What constitutes work? And that would be laid out. Spell Mishnah. M-I-S-H-N-A-H. Mishnah. Um, so, so here's here's a portion of Mishnah. Then Gemara is commentary, early rabbinic commentary on the Mishnah. And then up here is Rashi's commentary on the Gemara and the Mishnah. Rashi is a rabbi, and you can see from about the years right around the year one thousand uh, in in France. And then the Tosafot over there is commentary on Rashi. You get the, you, you know, and so it's, and, and so this is where a, a good rabbinical student, you know, that's the thing, you're tracking through. What did the Bible say? How did the early rabbis speak about that? And then what is, how does Rashi, and he's a, he's a helpful commentary. Matter of fact, you probably, you won't be able to see it there, but um, it, it, they even put his portion in, a, in what we call Rashi script. It's a different Hebrew script. Um, so you can see where, you know, then you're tracing through developments ideas, and all of this is considered oral Torah. And it's of equal authority as the written Torah, the Bible. Now here's just another picture of it that kind of, I want to just give you a sense, color coding all the different portions uh, to find your way around here. And so it's a, a very, you know, it, it's complex it's centuries of tradition and development of thought in these multi-volumes. And the Talmud's not the end of the story. And then there continue to be rabbinic developments up to the present day. All of this is considered Torah, which you can translate, I like to translate that instruction or even revelation. Uh, and so, um, for example, the word for teacher in Hebrew is mora. And it's, you can see it's related. It's, it's, so it's, it's a giving forth of instruction. So Torah is written. That's what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And then oral, which is the rabbinic traditions down through the centuries. Yes? So what is the scripture that started this whole discussion? Yeah, you'd have to look in there, and I, I didn't look carefully enough to say, um, you know, it, within that Mishnah, there would be a, um, maybe a reference, or somewhere in there, maybe even the chapter, there will be some kind of a quote. I should probably have grabbed one that just kind of show you how they might take a phrase and then start saying, so what, is that, what does that mean? And, so, and then what's interesting is, even in as early as the Mishnah, there'll be these discussions. Well, Rabbi so-and-so said it's this. And Rabbi so-and-so said it's this. And this is what the consensus is. And, and a, a rule of, of rabbinic interpretation is the majority is right. And where I typically find the majority is virtually always wrong. <laughs> but, anyway, um, but anyway, so that's how they, but they, would, they kind of, all along showing. And so when Jesus got up there and said, thus saith the Lord, basically, you've heard it, you've heard so he's talking about the oral traditions. But I say unto you, and again, the, a good rabbi could say, well, he would walk through those. Well, rabbi so-and-so said this, and rabbi so-and-so said this. That's where his authority, and that shows his brilliance, how he can trace these developments. Um, and, and as you can see, there's, there's centuries in here. So, so the Mishnah, that's, uh, like I said, finished by 200. And you've got Rashi here at a thousand, 
And then in the 12th and 13th century, so you're looking over a thousand years of, of thought right there. So it's, um, it, it's, a, it's, it's deep and substantive. And so students just spend their, can spend you know, years studying um, the Talmud and working through things. Yes? Who decides which ones get added to uh, the... That's a good question. Later editors do stuff. And so some of these are even later things. Like You can guess that some of these are maybe some uh, like footnoted practically. And, and there's even a section that uh, for technical, for um, textual problems. So, well, this is actually what it, this is what it really said in the beginning. It didn't, there's a spelling error here or whatever. Uh, so subsequent additions come out that will sometimes add more information. But it's a, um, so, so I, I point that out just again to see what Jesus was up against. Jesus says, your problem is, you're putting man's tradition over God's word. And, and so, so that's one of the things we need to understand that the, what the struggle is. And, and, and I compare that to Roman Catholicism, where the traditions of the church, which is constantly layer upon layer building, um, and, and, the, and the Roman Catholic Church will tell you, the tradition of the church is, is, a, is a second strand. Of, of, of revelation and the third strand is that the church alone can uh, authentically interpret the other two so it's a threefold cord of truth of equal authority inseparable that's, so that's a good example of we have that within the Christian tradition but that's where those again the reformation where Martin Luther would be like a rabbi standing up and saying sola Hebrew scriptures, uh, they, they don't call them, you can guess the Jews don't usually call the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Because if you say it's an Old Testament, that assumes there is a New Testament, which they don't recognize. Uh, so a lot of times they'll, they'll simply call it the Tanakh, which means, which is an abbreviation, um, T-N-K. And in English, we would, you know, Tanakh. Uh, the T stands for Torah, that's Moses' writings. The N, Nevi'im, that's the prophets. And the Ketuvim, that's like chronicles and proverbs and psalms. So they all often refer to it as the Tanakh. Um, but that's, so Jesus accepts the Tanakh. And he'll often refer to uh, Moses and the prophets. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the Jewish way of referring to the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and he'll talk about what is written. And that's why it says, not one jot, not one tittle. He's talking about the written word. Those are, the jot is the, the smallest letter in Hebrew. The tittle is the smallest part of a letter that distinguishes letters. Like the D, the difference between a D and an R in Hebrew is just this little, you know, you have to have good, good glasses on to, to see it. And so, but so as Jesus keeps saying, that's the authoritative revelation, what is written. And, the, and but, but when they say, you aren't, you're a sinner because you're not keeping the law, they mean by that the written law and all of the rabbinic stuff, like defining what is acceptable on Sabbath. Is, is the Mishnah closed like scripture or is it still being commentated? Well, the Mishnah is finished. Okay. And that's, yeah, and that's being finished. And so, and the Talmud, I guess, technically you'd say is finished, but but the there are con continuing layers of rabbinic thought. Even today? Even today, <laughs> yeah. And part of that is some of those things is how do we deal with some of these issues? Um, you know, and I've mentioned before the uh, Sabbath elevator. You know, uh, work and causing a lighting a fire is work. A spark is a fire. So if you flip a light switch, you're causing a spark. That's starting a fire. That's that's doing work. And so, can you get on an elevator and press a button that causes a spark? And so, there was, I, you know, for at least for a time, I think the rabbis may have had second thoughts, but you could get on a Sabbath elevator where it just stops at every floor. And so you don't have to press the button. Yeah. 
posting trigger text on the on the No posting trigger text on the silent. Yeah, there you go, right. <laughs> Isn't that kind of weaseling around? How do they get around breathing and blinking? <laughs> but there's all that's the thing, there's all kinds of um, then there's these workarounds, you know, and so for example, uh, a Jewish, uh, you can sometimes find a stove that you will buy that has a, a Sabbath setting, you know, where you can put the beans or something on it and it just keeps it warm through the night or other kinds of things like that, that they, um, and that's where you look to the rabbis for, give us an interpretation, what is, what's the appropriate thing? And, and one of the great rabbinic sources is uh, Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> Remember how they keep coming, Rabbi. What do you? What's the answer on this? What's the appropriate prayer? What's the? What's right and wrong? Can we do this? And um, those are some of the tensions. I was looking at the, the Sabbath mode in our, our oven, and uh, <laughs> I think basically it starts the night before and runs. But then when you close the door, it doesn't kick the heat on again right away because I guess that would be too too uh, much your involvement. But it'll turn on later. You know, like, yeah. Well, that's that's what there's there. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. So you, but you're not technically doing it. Right. I I mentioned before when I the first summer I was in Israel, I, I actually was in a dorm that was uh, the the observant dorm. You know. So here here was a a Gentile Christian in with the, the observant Jews, and I was I was talking with one of my Christian friends one time, and a Jewish guy came. One of the Orthodox Jews came by and said. Uh, How's it going? It is Sabbath, and so there's not a whole lot you can do. You don't listen to the radio, don't watch TV, you can't go anywhere. The buses are all down, you can't shop. Um, and so you learn, by the, soon, it doesn't take you more than a week or two in Israel to realize you better get your food before uh, Shabbat or you're going to be hungry. Um, anyway, so he came by and said, you know, we're, hey, we're, some, some, some girls are coming over and we're hoping to have dinner together. Oh, that's great, yeah. Of course, we can't we can't turn on the stove because that would violate the Sabbath. <laughs> but if we went in and found that the, the burner was already on, we could use it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so they're coming over about seven. We're looking, you know, going to have a good time together. Great. And then he left my friend and said, I think it's supposed to turn on the stove. <laughs> I think so. And so he went in and he turned on the stove. And later on, after they had a great time down there and, Guy came by and said, "No, I could never turn. Thank you for turning, you know, starting a fire on the Sabbath." But I think you get my meaning. <laughs> so there's always there's there's workarounds, you know. So so anyway, so that's where the rabbis help. But some of it seems like loopholes, you know. Here's here's the out, you know. Uh, but some of it is also, okay, what do we do in the circumstance, and and uh, what does constitute work, and how do we, you know. What does that mean in these times? And so, like the whole washing of hands, that's enough. I think I've even shown you the video of a rabbi explaining just how you do it, when you do it. Uh, that's all extra biblical. That's all law outside of the Bible. And so, so when, when they're talking about Jesus breaking the Sabbath, Jesus, Galatians tells us he was born under the law. He kept God's law. He was a faithful Jewish man under God's law. But he did not keep rabbinic law. And, and so, so that's what's... Uh, and, and, and his disciples were, were faithful Jews. Remember when, when God shows Peter the division from heaven? Here, here's all these unclean foods. You know, like, uh, I'm sure there was a bowl of shrimp cocktail some lobster tails next to some beautifully melted butter, uh, pork roast. Anyway, all these things taken. He said, I can't. I've never touched that stuff in my life. Because a lot of times we say, oh, Peter is a fisherman. You know, they're always untruth. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> but, but um, That's why I take yeah. pictures. Yeah. And so, uh, but, but he says, I, I wouldn't touch anything unclean. So they were observant, faithful Jews. Um, so anyway, so that's but but Jesus was a faithful Jew, faithful to the written Torah, and but and that's where his conflict with the Pharisees, like chapter nine, comes in. But anyway, I just want to show that you get that all sense of kind of how the all the traditions piled up layer upon layer, and again back to this, um, 
and that's not even, so so that's not even the final decision. That's you know that's that doesn't even that's not that's a commentary on the Mishnah, but it's an incomplete commentary. So it's just the you, you just get the sense of how can you keep all that? You know, now that they're not all rules. Some of them are stories, they're discussions, but you, you get the, the complexity of Jewish thinking. And why you need a rabbi? Because who has time to read all that? Would they go so far as to unroll the scroll before the Sabbath so they wouldn't? No, I think you definitely you could unroll the scroll <coughs> on the Sabbath, and they would do that in the synagogues, no problem. Because they you took can't... it and handed it to Jesus. Was that on the Sabbath? I guess that would be but because he didn't carry it too far. You know, you can only carry certain loads, certain distance, and that might be the question: Does a bed scroll fit into that? Because, you know, uh, that's not really laid out. Um, you cannot write. Uh, you cannot even draw more than I think two lines, or maybe it was three, because that might look like you're trying to write. Um, it get according to rabbinic tradition. So, so what Jesus is saying is, and here's a good clue. God was the first Sabbath keeper. You know, he, he, he made the seventh day holy. He ceased from his labors, but he didn't cease from his activity or the solar system would spin out of control. So you see, so, he, so, um, so doing good, providential care is all within, um, you know, the goodness of the Sabbath rest. But how easily our laws, we start focusing on the law instead of the, the lawgiver. Are there really those that would claim they could keep all that? I mean, most of them probably never read it all. There would be some who would, um, I guess they would say, you know, because um, the Jews did not accept the doctrine, of, or do not accept the doctrine of original sin. So they believe we are born innocent and we have uh, two tendencies good and evil within us. And so they would say there are those who have lived sinlessly. Um, you know, but one of the problem, one of the things we look at is you can look at a Moses, you can look at an Abraham, you can look at a David and say, heroes, heroes, godly heroes of the faith, not sinless. Um, so what is their Savior supposed to do? Um, Way back then, to deliver them from Rome, Deliver them from Rome. I don't know that, they, and that was a struggle too. They, they got into two theories of saving of Messiah. Uh, one was a suffering Messiah. One was a saving Messiah. And I'm not sure if they would have any of them saw him as atoning for sin by his, you know. But it's um, so I'm not sure if they would see that aspect of it. Yeah. I have to admit. That Like Dave Atonement is really focused on on the national sin. And like we would all say, we're surrounded by sinners. But um, uh, you know, I don't know, would someone be would ever someone actually go through uh, would a faithful, faithful Jew actually go through life and say, I've never I don't never needed a sin sacrifice? I wonder if they might say, Well, you look at Job, remember he offered sin sacrifices for his sons just in case. And so, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how they would, what they would say about someone living a sinless life and what that looks like. Of course, that later, that rabbinic idea is post, you know, most of them, the temple's already gone anyway. And the way post-temple, what the Jews say for atonement is, it's by fasting, it's by repentance, fasting, prayer, good works. That's how you make atonement since we don't have a temple. The uh, professor I took a theology course from in, in college uh, brought a Jewish person to class for discussion one day. We got on this subject of uh, what they were expect expecting from Messiah. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, Messiah will either come when things are as bad as possible or as good as possible. <laughs> Who wants the one and we don't need them in the other? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> now see, see, remember within within Judaism today, there's a spectrum, just like within can I say Christian Christendom Christianity, there's liberals to conservatives or liberals to, to fundamentalists. In, 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 in within Christian circles, we look at a rise of liberalism, mid-1800s, enlightenment, evolution. All of a sudden, they start saying Christianity is a man-made religion. The Bible is a man-made book. And so we see liberalism permeating churches and denominations. The Jews had the same problem. And so uh, one of the, you know, they came up with this Judaism called Reform Judaism, which was, going, which was a, the liberal Judaism. You'll hear about those today. Um, you know, they're, they, 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 in terms of practice and ordinations, it's typical like a liberal mainline de denomination of churches. And so that's when the, the, the fund more fundamental uh, Jews said, well, if they're reformed, what are we? That's where the label orthodox, we'll call ourselves orthodox. So it's, we are the ones who hold to the Torah is God's revelation. I had fun one time at one of our dormitory you know, hangout and uh, drink punch and talk nights. And I got two of my friends together. One was an Orthodox Jew, one was a conservative Jew. That's kind of a middle of the road, partly liberal, partly conservative. And so I just said, so what is the Jewish view of the Bible? And it, and it, and it took off from there. And I just kind of observed the whole, you know, <laughs> I got a good picture of uh, just a couple, you know, the, the differing views. Um, how did I get into so, so? So, with it, what do we expect of the Messiah? One of the questions is: Is it a messianic age, or is it an actual personal Messiah? And so, the liberals would say it's just going to be this. We're hoping for this coming glorious time when everything's nice. Yeah. And so, again, one of the things when studying religions, you always recognize: Okay, here's. Here is the textbook definition of their beliefs. But you'd have a hard time finding any one Jew that would say, oh yeah, that's exactly, you know what I mean? There's, there's so much diversity. And even the Jews say, if you have three Jews in the room, you have four opinions. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, so it's hard to say, this is what, you can't, I, I would not stay before you say, this is what all Jews believe, uh, or even what all rabbis believe. But here are the, the, the broad categories. But just so we have a sense of, again, when they're saying you've broken the law, and when the rabbis are saying you've broken the law, they're saying the law as we define it. And, and, and yet they're, they're saying it to the perfect, sinless law giver who has a, you know, he knows what the law is. And, and, and he did not break the law. So um, with that, I think I'll turn that off. And, whoops, and then I'll stop mirroring. There we go. So, um, in terms, aside from that, any other thoughts about today's passage? Uh, our, our text in John, um, and the healing of the blind man. Yes, Paul. Uh, the blind man made a remark about... Uh, since the beginning of time, no one has ever opened the eyes of the person that was blind. And I was reviewing Isaiah 42, verse 7, when the prophesied, where uh, the Lord prophesying is coming, and he's talking about he will open the eyes of the blind and so on. So, in effect, Jesus was uh, reflecting back to Isaiah 42, 7. So, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yes, yeah, so. The, 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 remember the blind man said no one's ever done this before and yet in Isaiah it says the in the messianic kingdom and the messiah will do that and so that's the evidence of the messianic character of Jesus it was and, and one of the things too uh, within rabbinic Judaism in the Talmud you know they would take an un, uh, a negative view of Jesus and, you know might call him a sorcerer or something like that in other words so which I always think is an interesting concession if you're calling him a sorcerer, you're acknowledging he did miracles. You know, and so that's kind of a backhanded acknowledgement. Well, he did miracles. He existed, he did miracles. Um, but where did the miracles come from? But so what the man was arguing, 
No Egyptian, nobody ever did this. No Egyptian magician like you know could copy some of Moses' miracles. This must be of God. And that was kind of his argument. But and again, my you know Messiahs to do that. Yes, Becky. I don't know if that anything to hear. I was once blind, but now. Yes, I was. Becky's saying she was once blind, and now she sees. And again, I, I that's where I think. John Newton, you know, this, his hymn was so popular because it speaks the truth we all said. I was lost. I was blind. And, and, and frankly, that is a deeper darkness. The spiritual darkness is a deeper darkness. You mentioned this morning that they had the facts. Mm. The guy was blind. People testified to it. Now you can see. You can see that. Remind me of a statement statement by President Biden who said, I'm not interested in facts, I want the truth. So, <laughs> how do you separate those two? Yeah, but that's exactly what the rabbis were doing, is separating. So, uh, George was saying that uh, President, he, the, the, I mentioned today that the uh, the facts were all before them. They, they could not argue that he was born blind. They could not argue that he could see. Those are the facts. And, and, and apparently President Biden has said uh, one time, I'm not interested in facts. I want the truth. And that's kind of what their attitude was. Don't, don't trouble us with facts. What is truth? Our truth is uh, this man doesn't agree with us, so he couldn't do that by God's power. I heard an interesting, or read an interesting um, story. Speaking of blindness, and almost, I wasn't sure if I, I didn't use it to mention this today, but this was in the papers back in 1981-1982. Anna May Panica was born with cataracts that left her blind. So she was born with cataracts. Many of us have had them, and no, but she was blind. Uh, in, but in October 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute in Los Angeles removed the cataract from Anna May's left eye. And for the first time she could see, she even passed a driver's test. And so, you know, there's an example of born blind, the miracle of receiving her sight. But then this, this writer, uh, Vernon Grounds, goes on to say, but there's more to the story. There's a sad postscript to the surgical triumph. The technique for correcting Mrs. Penica's eye condition had been in use since the 1940s. So she, had, she was born blind, had the surgery in 1981, she could have been enjoying 40 years of sight, but instead had remained blind needlessly. And then he goes on to say, what a greater tragedy to stumble through this world with sightless souls and be lost in impenetrable night forever. That was condition of the Pharisees when Jesus healed a man born blind. So there's again, there's blindness, which is our tragedy. There is needless blindness. The woman who for 40 years that surgery was available. And for, for us, Becky, you were blind. And for how long did you go before your eyes were opened? And some of us were much younger and some of us much older when that darkness was penetrated. And what a, what a tragedy. What, a, what Matthew Henry said, there's no blindness so bad as the, the blindness that will not see. Uh, and, and so that's... But, but, but I think, too, in our hearts, when we look around and see the blind people around us, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you see someone blind, maybe trying to cross the street, get up a curb, navigate some stairs. Isn't your first reaction, I wonder how I, how I can help? Mm -hmm. you know, and, and of course, you, you always wonder, am I going to do it wrong? <laughs> and usually they'll even help you. No, here, stick out your elbow, I'll take your arm. But... I think maybe if God would give us a view of the, the blind around us and say, how can I help? How can I help uh, them? And again, what was Jesus' help? Ultimately, he gave him physical sight, but then he said, do you, do you believe in the Son of God? Who is he? You tell me, Lord, and I'll believe in him. And so the greatest, you know, how can we introduce people uh, to Christ and see them? So again, with a heart of compassion, recognizing the blindness that's around us. But the last verse was kind of interesting. Like, basically, until the Pharisees admitted their condition, 
There's no, no change. Yeah. So the Pharisees at the end, they prove their, bind, their blindness. And it's, uh, yeah, you are blind. Because, especially because you say you know the truth. Especially because you say, you're, you, know, you, you, you know Moses. That's a, a greater blindness. So when we think we've got it under control without God, then we're not even in the stage where he can do the work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a sad thing when you will hear lost people say, yeah, I don't need that. Um, and sometimes they'll be great, very kind and say, well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad it works for you. Uh, but I don't need that. Isn't that lukewarm? When they had to take that attitude, it's okay for you, but it's not for me. It's kind of lukewarm. Yeah, that might be the the lukewarm word that God says that nauseates them. Uh, you know, it's you know, there was maybe they're not violently antagonistic, but just dismissive. That doesn't doesn't do anything for me. That'd be like again, like seeing a blind person and say, "I recognize looking at you. You have cataracts." You know, there's a surgery that could fix that. Well, that's fine for you. Uh, I'm, I don't need that. And, and, and you walk away shaking your head. Well, you do. But, but you know, uh, that's, uh, I can't make you see what you will not see. Or maybe it's the response is, are you saying I have cataracts? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are you saying I have cataracts? Are you saying I can't see? Who are you? I thought it was helpful and he's uh, grilling with all these questions and you said uh, all the questioning helped him refine his thinking and his understanding. I thought, because I think we tend to shy away from questions and mm -hmm. if it can help us think through and understand and clarify our thinking and our understanding. Yes, so Yes, you know, we should not be afraid of questions, even questions that challenge us, because that might help us refine our ability to understand and, and express the faith. And so I'm sure you find like these, you know, these apologists that always have the perfect answer. A lot of times it's for one thing, they've heard that question 85 times. And so they've had time to refine how to express the, the correct answer. You know, we hear it the first time and we kind of get stumbled. But I, that's an encouragement to me. Challenges, questions are not a threat. Um, I, and I, when I think of that again, I, I met a man one time who was right, went to Catholic school and he asked a question uh, in, about, in a religion class as a kid. And the nuns got all over him. Don't you dare ask questions. Who are you to challenge? And so he never asked any more questions. And, and then he left the Catholic church as soon as he could and had nothing to do with it. But the inter interesting thing is this man went on to uh, help a number of countries write their constitutions, you know, and so you know, instead of saying to that young person, "Well, that's that's an interesting question. Let's think about that," you know, let's let's look at the, and, and and you might come up with, "I never thought of that." I'll get back to you, and uh, then you come back and say, "Well," so so I don't think and, and and like the the creeds, the councils that we talk about in Sunday school today. He mentioned a couple of them. The, Apostles' Creed, maybe, or Chalcedon, Nicene Creed. Those came out of conflict. They came into this meeting saying, some people saying Jesus isn't God, and others saying, oh, yes, he is. And so, and what they did is they didn't take a vote. What, what do we feel? They dig into the scriptures and, and come up with Jesus is God. And so, that the very fact that there's a challenge helped them define the issues. So, so in our relationships and as a church, the challenges can help us grow and mature and, and refine our thinking. So yeah, we don't run from them. Yeah. Well, the correct term is circle back. Yeah, we'll circle back to you. I'll circle back. <laughs> My head started spinning after I heard that quote. And somebody, I'll circle back to you. <clears throat> The thing is, in, in a lot of the um, churches that, like Episcopal or Presbyterian, they recite the Apostles and Nicene Creed. Mm -hmm. Episcopal Church recited it every Sunday except the days we had Lord's Supper mm -hmm. or Communion. 
And then they recited the Nicene Creed. And if you believe what you're saying, that's a testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ, but you don't really realize what you're saying because you say it from rote memory. Susan was commenting on, and this is one of the Hardings, uh, across the world, uh, every Sunday, churches are have, have people that will recite really good creeds, and and but they don't really mean it. They don't believe it from their heart. They don't know the Savior that they're talking about. And in in one sense, uh, it, it's almost a tragedy because they say that every day. They know the vocabulary, and so when you tell them, you know, that Jesus is God in the flesh and He died for your sins. Oh yeah, I say that every Sunday. Okay, that didn't work. Uh, how you know you know to cutting through that uh, cold orthodoxy, uh, where and, and and that's where you know from the time of Martin Luther, but especially you start talking about Whitfield and all that, they were called evangelicals because that comes from the word evangel, which is the gospel. These are people that believe Christianity, the Christian life, is centered in the gospel. In other words, a personal decision to trust Christ as opposed to just believing, acknowledging the creeds. Um, yeah, and that's, that is a struggle because today you can go to these churches and they've got the creeds. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question, and it's not, it's, it's on the creed, not on the biblical, <clears throat> what we're studying. But in the, it says about, uh, something came up today. It says uh, that Jesus went to, he went through hell, and I need help with that. He descended into hell. Yeah. Uh, if one of the, at least one of the creeds is that the, the Nicene Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, um, rose from the, you know. Uh, and I would say, I think that's a mistake. Um, and so um, there's different ways of approaching that. But, but, I would, but I think the key is, I think that's coming from especially Ephesians chapter 4. Um, in Ephesians 4, it uh, talks about God, you know, Christ giving the giving gifts. Um, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, therefore he says, and this is in the context of Christ giving gifts to the church, and in this case, the gift of leaders, the, the pastors and teachers and, and evangelists. Now this he, therefore it's, it's, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this... He ascended, Paul says, verse 9 of Ephesians 4. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? So what he's saying, Paul's doing a little bit of logic here. Well, if, if, he, if he ascended, he must have descended before he ascended, right? And so, but notice what he says, to the lowest parts of the earth. Um, and so some take that as a, suggesting that Jesus went to hell. Uh, that's in that creed. Um, and also, some uh, in, the, in the word faith will say that Jesus, you know, spent time in hell. Uh, and, and and here's the problem. First of all, I think it's coming from primarily from this text. And and I think rather when it, when it says the lowest parts of the earth, it's emphasizing from the heights of heaven to the lows to the to the depths of, of coming to earth. This is a reference to his humiliation. incredible humiliation of, of coming to earth. Philippians two. You know, we look around and say, this is pretty good, but compared to heaven, <laughs> it's not so good. And so he descended, and that's where, so that's where he's saying, if, if he ascended, that means first he had to descend. Uh, but the other passage that comes to mind is, <clears throat> when Jesus is on the cross, he says, um, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so he is a picture of what happens to every believer at the moment of death. Absent from the body, not present in hell, present with the Lord. To the thief, he said, today you'll be with me in hell, but we'll get, it won't be that long. We'll get, no, he says, you'll be with me in paradise. And so, so I would say um, that's probably not the best way of expressing that. And I haven't looked at the Greek of the creed recently. But um, it's not scripture. 
No, it's not a it's not a scriptural doctrine. Churches use it like it's equal to God's word. Yes. And so some churches, and that's where again, that's where a Luther, remember, unless you can convince me from scripture, not from councils and creeds, which are imperfect. Now we use the catechism. That's a helpful reminder of what we believe, but it's not scripture. Um, and so, um, so yes, that's that's the mistake they make. One of the uh, commentators that I appreciate, <coughs> an Anglican, uh, was W. H. Griffith Thomas, and he was um, he was supposed to be the first the theology professor at Dallas Seminary, but he died just before he came. And so, um, so that's why Dr. Chafer came, you know, became the theology professor. But anyway, Dr. Griffith Thomas uh, was a great scholar, and he wrote a, a commentary on the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, which includes that. And, and he was very much of a, um, and I think he clarified that, but I can't, it's been a while since I've read that. Simple answer is that's not scripture. For, and those are the two reasons. I think it misunderstands Ephesians 4 and it contradicts I'm, I'm giving my spirit is going into your hands Father that's, that's not hell sorry is that an amber alert yes Jesus numerous times refers to himself as the son of man but here he says the son of God why the change yeah, so, the, so notice, so Keith's asking a good question. So often Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And I and, um, and here he calls himself the Son of God. Uh, why the change? And that's, and, and Keith's asking that a helpful, one of those good questions to understand Scripture. You know, who, what, where, where, why, but why? What, that's the interpretive question. Why, what was he trying to get across? Uh, a couple things strike me. Uh, well, Jesus, when he calls himself the Son of Man, two things. One, it shows that he is truly man, his incarnation. But also, in, in Daniel 7, that's a, that's a messianic title. So he came in, his, in humanity to be the Messiah. Son of God uh, is an expression of deity. Um, and so why did he say that? I think for one thing, this, I think he's he's blessing this man. You know, you, you know, you, you you are believing. You know, you you know, you've been trusted, and so I think he's giving them. He's unfolding to him what he would not unfold to the Pharisees. And and I think too the whole point of the man has just argued. Wait a minute. You know, this. You know, it's only God can do this. This has to be from God, and you cannot tell me this man's a sinner. And so I think when he comes and says, if he'd said son of man, it wouldn't have the same direct answer. If you've, you've said, I'm, you know, only God can do this. Well, I am the son of God. And so I think that's, you know, the deity of the, uh, to, to explain the power. But I think it is such a concession to this beggar that everybody, ignores. and we still don't know his name. <laughs> I have to talk to John about that. Did you not know? Um, no, I'm sure he did. But, but. You know, just a simple, simple man, but Jesus in his mercy, in the shadow of the temple, tells him what he won't tell those, those but they were too blind to receive it. But, so I think he's emphasizing, you're right, uh, this is divine power, and I am the Son of God. That's, that's my take on it. You think the Son of Man was to the learned people, but the Son of God was to somebody who may not have heard I, you know, I, you're right. I think, in one sense, that's an interesting thought. Uh, with how many people would recognize the son of son of man label from Daniel chapter seven? Um, son of God is a stronger statement. Uh, you know, yeah, that's yeah, that's a that's a very bold statement, and um, and partly it might not. They're not ready for that. That might light the fire that he's not ready to. You know, I think we're six months out to at this point before the Passover, the final Passover. But but maybe that's also a way of helping a, a man with lesser learning. I'm the son of God. But I love his response. You just tell me who he is, and I'll believe him. And he gets it. That's why I think the, I think that's a huge thing. He worships. 
you know, our, the Jehovah's Witness friends we, you know, that are down the street from us or whatever, you know, our co-workers, um, they would say Jesus is the Savior. They honor him. They don't worship him because uh, he's not God. He's a creature. He's a created being, like an angel. And so that's where it's interesting. In Revelation, the passage I quoted today, John worshipped an angel, and the angel said, you stop that. But Jesus does not stop this man from worshiping him. And so that tells me Jesus is even more than an angel. Uh, he's the son of God. He's, he's God. You could kind of manipulate anything you wanted to. I mean, after all, the three men that approached Abraham doing the discourse of Lot, and, you know, Lot was going to go here and there, and he was at about the tent door. That was a pre incarnate Christ that was there. So yeah. He'd come in any form he likes. Yeah, so, yeah, so that, the, the three that came and visited Abraham, that's one of the things I think, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You know, part, that's, I'm not sure if that's what he's referring to, but Abraham saw the, the pre incarnate Christ. Yeah. So the first thing that blind men saw was the empty. That's what it could happen. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Who's the Son of God? You see him. You know that, and again, that's that. That to me is, you know, that Fanny Crosby came to mind. You know, just uh, how how she looked forward to seeing Jesus, and that we 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 say that so lightly, but this is one who couldn't see. Yeah, yeah. Especially, yeah, double vision, didn't he? Simon, he saw him, and he saw him spiritually. Yeah, yeah, he saw him with his eyes and his heart. Isn't that amazing? How many people saw him with their eyes and not the heart? 